It's wonderful to see you on Christmas morning, on a cold Christmas morning for Florida. I uh, went out to start the car early this morning, which you don't have to do a lot in Florida, and uh, it was downright cold out there, but uh, glad to see you out this morning, and uh, Merry Christmas to all. How many of you already opened your presents this morning? We didn't open ours yet, so <laughs> we... Uh, we're going to open them when we get home and, uh, and uh, enjoy, enjoy the time then. But uh, thank you for making the, the time this morning as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Uh, what better way to celebrate than to come together and spend some time in worship and in His Word. So take your copy of God's Word and go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're just going to look at the birth of Christ this morning and all the, the surrounding events and the things that happened I want you to understand this morning, as we think about the birth of Christ, that it was not—it uh, was not an accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't just the arrangement of some random events. It was actually planned. It was a planned event. It was planned by God before time began. The birth of Christ was planned before the world was created. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam uh, sinned and God. Uh, told them the consequences of their sin and, and how it separated them now. And, uh, but God promised that uh, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. That would be Jesus. And so the birth of Christ was planned from before the world began. It is the most important event in all of human history. It is the most important because if not for the birth of Christ, there would be no hope will be no purpose in life. I mean, think about it. Without Jesus, humanity could make great accomplishments throughout human history, build great things, make great discoveries, do all that God enabled us to do in his image. But it would be for nothing without a Savior because we'd all die and perish and would all go away. So this birth of Christ brings purpose to life and it brings hope. I know many struggle in this time of the, of the year, many struggle in this season uh, for many reasons, but I want you to know today, if it's a hard part of the year for you, put your hope in Christ. He's the one who gives hope. He's the one who gives strength, and he's the one who gives purpose to life. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians, and I, I quoted this passage Friday night. He said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, for this purpose, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. God the Father sent his son to the earth to redeem us. And to do that, he died on the cross. The purpose of God fulfilled in the birth of his son. Let's look at the events this morning, beginning in Luke chapter 2, the first three verses. Look at it with me. Now Luke tells us, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Luke's account begins with an official decree from the Roman government, from the leader, from the emperor. History tells us about every 14 years the Romans would 
conduct a census of their, of their citizens. Two or three reasons why they would do that. The Roman Empire was ever-expanding, conquering new territories. And, you know, if you don't know histories, here's how it worked most of the time. The Roman army, which was pretty much invincible, would march up to a city, and they would say to the city, you have two options. You can surrender and become part of the Roman Empire and pay taxes and enjoy all the protection of the Roman Empire, or you can resist us, and when we get in there, we'll kill everybody. Most cities said, we're Roman now. We, 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 we surrender. So they would do a census to measure how large their empire was for really two reasons. One, there was a compulsory requirement that men serve in the Roman army. And so they would take a census and figure out how many people they had in their kingdom, and then they would uh, require a draft system, a compulsory service to serve in the army. And secondly, what every government is fond of doing, they collected taxes. They wanted to know who was responsible to pay taxes. Now, an interesting thing about the Hebrews, the Jews, the Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman army, but they were not exempt from paying the taxes. So the census, the, the, the order from Caesar would have applied to the Jews and that they would have been counted, if you will, in this census so that they would know who was supposed to pay taxes. Well, this guy that gave the order, the decree, Caesar Augustus, a lot of history there about the Romans. Augustus was actually related as a, as a nephew to Julius Caesar, who was credited with founding the Roman Empire, and later Julius adopted him as a son. And when Julius was assassinated, you know the story, between Augustus and Mark Antony and uh, Lepidus, they kind of co-decided who would be the leader, and then there was the fight with Mark Antony, and Augustus came out on top. And so he's the Caesar who gave the, who gave the command, and he's the guy who wanted to take the census, and it would stand to reason that if he was relatively new as the leader, he would want to get a hold of his kingdom and understand the taxes and how many people he has. An interesting thing that Luke says here, he names a guy, Quirinius, who's governor in Syria. For years, critics of the Bible attacked this verse because there were really no historical records to prove that he was a governor in Syria. But, as is the process, history, historical records were discovered, and he did serve in Syria from 10 B.C. forward. So once again, just so you know, History proves out what the Bible says. So here's my recommendation. Just believe what the Bible says in the first place. How about that? And then sooner or later, the rest of the world will catch up with what the Bible says and figure out that it's true. So we have this, this historical account. Now, you say, Pastor, you always spend so much time with the history. But I want you to understand that Luke was a historian. Luke was a physician. And Luke wrote very specifically Matter of fact, Luke gives us the most detailed account of the birth of Christ. And secondly, when you understand the real world that these people lived in, it gives a whole new vision to the Bible, doesn't it? It helps you understand why the people did what they did. You see, what we're going to discover here is that Caesar, though he thought he was in charge of the greatest nation at the time, he wasn't really in charge. God is. And God used him. And he didn't even know he was being used to bring 
his son into the world in the right place at the right time. And so these, these things that Luke tells us are important. And here, let me, let me just put it this way. When you read the Bible and you read something in the Bible, every word's important. Every event's important. Every person is important. And it's important for us to understand it. Now, notice verses uh, 4 and 5, because this order, this census, affected Joseph and Mary. Look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, we know that Mary, Joseph and Mary are in the wrong place. They're in Nazareth. And you say, well, how did they get in Nazareth? Why aren't they in Bethlehem? Good question. Well, if you read all the accounts, you find out that when, when the three wise men came, and remember Herod wanted to kill Jesus, the angel came to Joseph and said, take the, take, his, take the mother and the baby and go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to come back. Why did God send his son and the parents to Egypt? Because Herod wanted to kill them. And when Herod died, the angel came to Joseph and said, okay, go back to where you're supposed to be. But when Joseph and Mary came back, he was still afraid, and so he settled in Nazareth. He didn't go anywhere. He settled in Nazareth. So what's the issue here? Micah 5.2 said Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Mary's about to have a baby, and she's in Nazareth. Do you see a problem? You see, it really is this simple. If Jesus had not been born in Bethlehem, you could throw the rest of the book away. If one prophecy doesn't, doesn't come to be, then the rest of it's untrustworthy. But aren't you thankful God's sovereign? Because God moved the heart of a pagan ruler to order a census that required people to go back to their home of record, which for Joseph and Mary was where? Bethlehem of Judea. Why? You know this class. He's related to King David. He's in the lineage. Him and Mary both, right? Joseph is related through Solomon and Mary through Nathan. And so both of them are the house of David. And so when the order comes down, Joseph has to go home so he can get his nose counted with all the rest of the people and know who's in the kingdom. So God, here's the point, God sovereignly moved Joseph and Mary to where they needed to be. Now, she was great with child. She was near delivery. There was no easy way to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem ride on a donkey, or you ride on an animal, or in a cart. So they move her, Joseph, and, and, and her to there. When I read this every year, and I study this, and I think about it, I am, I am amazed er, every time at, at how specific God is in his rulership over the world. You see, there are heretics today who say, well, you know, if there's a God out there, he just created the world and put it in motion and walked away. What a lie. They obviously haven't read the Bible. God is, God is intimately involved in his creation. God is intimately involved in the lives of those whom he loves, which is you. God is intimately involved in the affairs of the world. Let me give you, let me give you an example that I think you will enjoy. I want you to understand that it was not an accident or just a happenstance that, that world affairs were where they were when Jesus was born. 
I want you to understand this morning that God sovereignly arranged the affairs of the world to, to support and enable what he planned to do in the world. I'll give you three examples. The Romans, from about 27 B.C. to 180, 187 A.D., 200 years is known as the Golden Age. America had a Golden Age. I would suggest it's past. We're now, we're now like most nations in the world, we've walked away from God, and we're fools. But Rome had a 200-year Golden Age. And there was in that 200 years what was called the Pax Romana. It's Latin for the Roman peace. And what it meant was the Romans were so dominant, there were no wars really going on. I mean, all Rome had to do was threaten to send their army over and people capitulated. They said, okay, okay. For 200 years, they were the dominant world power, no question about it. And what that brought was a peace. It meant there were no wars and strife. And you know what happens when there's peace? Commerce explodes and trade and, and people move around and, and they go from place to place and there's prosperity. So for 200 years, the Roman Empire brought great prosperity to the then known world in, in, in the Mediterranean area, in the Near East. It's no accident that they were in power and brought that peace because God's bringing his son into the world. And here's the point. What better time to found the church? What better time for, for the church to be born, for Jesus to die on the cross, Pentecost to come, and the apostles and the missionaries and, and Christians to be able to freely move around the world to share the gospel? You see, God ordained Rome to be in power when they were and ordained the way of the world. Let me tell you another thing about the Romans. They were builders. They built aqueducts and, and sewer systems and and you know what else they built? Roads. Roads. You can go to Europe today and take tours and walk on the roads the Romans built. They're still there. Maybe our road builders need to take a lesson from them, right? <laughs> I mean, their, road, their road's been there, you know, 2,000 years, and you can still walk on them. This road won't last 10 years, so... Probably, that's mean, isn't it? I probably said But... <laughs> If you work for the road company, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. The point is, the Romans built roads, and they're still there. I mean, you can walk on them. You can actually go there, and, and they're still there. Here's the important point. The Romans built roads for two primary reasons. One, commerce. And number two, they loved to move their military around. They loved to be able to move them and march them in the road, roads were it. They built major highways from the east to the west. They built major highways all up and down the, the peninsula of Italy. Like I said, many of them are still there. Now, what's the benefit of roads for a new found church? Where's Paul going? All over the place on Roman roads. And where are Christians going? All over the place on Roman roads. Churches were found. Read in the book of Revelation, the seven churches in the ark there in Asia Minor. How did they all get founded? People went there, and they took the gospel with them. Paul went there, and Silas and other preachers. They went with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the church spread like wildfire. Why? On Roman roads. 
You say, well, you know, the Romans would have built the roads anyway. Maybe so, but they built them when God ordained for them to be built. And, they ordained, and God ordained them to be built in that time when his son's coming into the world. Why? Because he's going to bring salvation to the world and the founding of the church and the gospel to spread over the world. I'll give you one more. The New Testament pop quiz for you. Ready? What, was, what, was, what language was it written in? You know this, Koine Greek. That's right. Common Greek. The common Greek of the day, which isn't the same as today, but it was the common Greek of that day. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. Okay? Church tradition says 70 Jewish scholars got together and translated it. But here's my point. Why was it that Greek was the common language of the day? Oh, you want to know this. Go all the way back to the book of Daniel, 500 years before Jesus was born. And in the book of Daniel, God revealed to Daniel the successive kingdoms that would come in order, right? The Babylonians, the Persians, and historians. Who came after the Persians? The Greeks, the Macedonians. A guy, a little old fellow named Alexander the Great. Remember him? Now, if you look at Alexander the Great from a particular, just strictly humanistic view, you would say to yourself militarily, there's no way he's going to take 50,000 Greek soldiers and defeat a Persian army that's probably 500,000 or 600,000 or more. No way that's going to happen. Guess what? Not only did it happen once, it happened three times. And the last time in 330 B.C. at Guagamela, Darius III pulled out all the stops. By some historians, he has three, four, five times as many soldiers as Alexander has. He puts them on a flat plane. Darius even went out and leveled the plane so that his chariots with the little blades on them, you see in the movies, could, could go into the Greeks and kill them. You ought to look it up when you go home today after you eat all your Christmas dinner. Look at, how, look at how Alexander the Great defeated the Persian army at Guagamela with odds three and four to one against him, and he beat him. Now listen, here's what I'm telling you. This isn't a history lesson, but I want you to know this. You know why Alexander was able to do that? Because 200 years before he got here, God said he was going to. Now we like, and Alexander was a great military leader. I love reading about his, ta I, just li I just like it. You say, that's weird. I know, I just like it though. But you know why he was so good? Because God said he would be. Now you say, what's that got to do with the birth of Jesus? Oh, I'm getting there. What language did Alexander speak? Greek, good guess, yes. And guess what Alexander did? He not only defeated the Persian Empire, but he took his armies almost to India. And he spread Greek Macedonian culture over the known world and then died at 32 years old. You say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is God brought a language into the region that became the language that most people spoke. And so when Jesus came along, i.e. God's plan, and the church is founded, and God begins to reveal the Holy Spirit to these men who penned the New Testament, guess what they write it in? The language that Alexander the Great brought to the region, which became the common language, which, by the way, is one of the most expressive languages in human history, which is why God had them write it in that language. 
Do you see what God was doing? Do you see that, that this, this coming and this birth of Jesus that Luke tells us about right here, all the way to the census of a Roman emperor who thinks he's just counting noses to get a military and pay taxes, God is sovereignly moving the pieces. That's what I'm telling you. God was sovereignly bringing all these world events to the, to the place where his son would be born at exactly the right time in exactly the right place to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's what God did. And that's what's in this, in this passage. That's what Luke is telling us when he gives us all these details. What a, what a terrible thing that God would so sovereignly move world events to bring his son into the world at, at the fullness of time. And so many would ignore the facts. And so many would ignore the clear evidence of God's love for us. Ask yourself this. Why would the sovereign God of all the universe do all that? Why would he care to move nations and empires and, and raise up the Greeks and defeat the Persians and then the Greeks uh, to divide when Alexander dies and his four generals get the, get the kingdom divided. And then the Romans, God raises up the Roman Empire and allows them to come to power. Why would God do all that? Why would God pick a, a, a young lady and, and the Holy Spirit come on her and she be with child without knowing a man as a virgin? And, and why would God move them with a census to Bethlehem? Why would God do all of this stuff? Because he loves you. Because he loves you and me and the world, and he wants people to be saved. He wants lost men and women to come to Christ. Why would Jesus willingly step down off the throne of heaven and lay aside his glory and his majesty and the worship of the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and all that's rightfully his and take on humanity, for goodness sakes, and come and be born into the world because we need a Savior. That's why. And he knows it. And he knew it. I was writing this week and I, I wrote some things down. I thought, how sad that God would orchestrate such a magnificent salvation and so many people ignore him. How sad that God would not only orchestrate these events and bring his son into the world as we've been talking about, and that the majority of the world would pass him by and ignore such a great gift and such great mercy and such a great offer. How sad that so many in the world today are not paying attention. You see, the things we've talked about this morning for just a few minutes are easily known. They're not hidden. I mean, you can read it in secular history. You can read it in the Bible. It's not hard to understand. But most of the world is so blinded and consumed with sin in their life, they miss the most important things. Can I say to you this morning, the presents are wonderful, and the giving and, and receiving of gifts is biblical. It's wonderful. It's love, and, and, and it's wonderful but don't lose the sight of what Christmas is all about. Don't lose sight of, of the purpose in the world has lost it. 
The world is missing it. The world is trying really hard today to remove Christ from every part of Christmas and just turn it into a holiday. But we know better, don't we? Because we know the God who did all this for us. And we know why Jesus came. Can I say to you online today, or who will watch this video later, or maybe you here today, if you've never been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, don't miss your opportunity. God brought you here today. God brought you under the purview of his word today to understand these things. And I don't know how to say it any plainer than I've said it. God loves you, and he did all this to save your soul. God did all this so that you could put your faith in Christ and be forgiven. Be forgiven of sin and be given his eternal life. Don't, don't waste the opportunity today. Well, let's read the actual account of the birth of Christ. You said, boy, I thought we'd never get there. No, we will. Okay, verse 6 and 7, look at it. So it was. Now, stop right there. So it was. They're in the right place now. God moved them down to, to Bethlehem, right? So, so it was. Here they are. That while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When you, when you talk about this birth event year after year after year, sometimes as a preacher you sit around and think, How, what can I say about this that somebody doesn't already know? Okay. Well, really nothing. You know this passage. But let me tell you what strikes me about this passage, and I pray it blesses you. Number one, the humility of it all really strikes me. The humbleness of it. The, 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 the just simpleness of it. You ever notice the Bible's really pretty simple? I mean, it just says the facts, you know. It just tells you what happened. Tells you, tells you what you need to do. I mean, God, I, I, one of the, you know, there's a lot to love about God, everything. But one of the things I really appreciate about God is he's just plain truthful with us. He doesn't hide anything. He just tells us how it is. Here it is. This humble birth of his son, the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the creator, the sustainer, the eternal one is born as a baby in a manger and spends his first night on earth in a feeding trough on some hay. What a dichotomy. What, what a thing that doesn't seem like it goes together, does it? I mean, you would think that if the Lord of glory is coming here, there'd be a brass band out there, right? And, and the singers and, the, and, and, and kings and potentates lined up to meet him and you would think it would be great rejoicing. Nah, kind of like Friday night, some animals sleeping, you know, some donkeys and some sheep or whatever were in there. And this young lady with no room in the end, in there in a, in a barn, so to say, in a cave, depending on how you see it, giving birth to the king of glory in a barn. No doctors, no nurses, no, no physicians, just them. What a humble way to come into the world. You wouldn't have your child born in a barn. You go to the hospital, don't you? I mean, you, you get the best. Not for Jesus, just a barn. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8 9. Listen. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be made rich. You know what Jesus did? He swapped places with us. That's what he did. He came from glory to here. Why? So we can go to glory. He came from glory to here and took our sin so we can have his righteousness. He came from glory to here to die so we can have his life. That's pretty good. That's what he did. That's what Paul said. Another thing that struck me about this account of his birth, very simple and straightforward, no room for him in the inn. Now that's, now, that's not what you're thinking. It ain't the Holiday Inn, all right? It ain't the Hilton or the Hilton Garden. Think of the situation. The Caesar's order came down. The census is being done. Everybody's traveling. People are going every which way, going back to their home of record. These inns, these places were just roofs with walls where people could sleep. They weren't really like you have your own room, you know, your own bathroom, none of that. So to be able to stay inside with a roof and walls was really all they were looking for, for her to have a baby, maybe some monicum of privacy for her to give birth to this child, and there's not even that. There's no room for them in the end. There's no room for the Son of God who's going to come into the world. There's no room for him. Is that not how the world is today? Is that not how people are today? There's no room for Jesus. You try to talk to them about Jesus, and they have no room for him. No room in their thinking. No room in their heart. No room in their life. They have no room for him. Can I say to you this morning, make room for Jesus, okay? Amen. Make room for Jesus. Make room for Jesus in your thinking. Make room for Jesus in your heart. If you've never been saved, ask him in. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man open, I'll let him come. You know, listen, do you know that that passage is really talking about the church? But we can make the application to the human heart. That's okay. We're not doing damage to it there. Jesus is knocking on, on, on the heart's door of people, and he won't push his way in. You have to open the door from the inside. Make room for him. Let him come in. He wants to come in. No room for him in the end. Born in a stable. Let me, let me say something else about that. Jesus will always be found in his earthly ministry among the humble, among the lowly. You know, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be born in a stable. He's God. If he wanted to be born in a palace, he could have been. He orchestrated the rest of the world events. He could have orchestrated a, a palace birth if he wanted to, but he didn't. He, he was born humbly. Why? Because the Bible says he came as a servant the first time he came. He came to serve. And he did that. He served by going to the cross and dying for us. They laid him in a manger in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes. When I was younger, I, I didn't have any idea what that was. I just heard it every year. Swaddling clothes. Never seen swaddling clothes on a hanger anywhere. I don't know what swaddling clothes are. But what they really are strips of cloth, just strips of cloth that they wrap them in. You know, when a baby's born, and, and I was privileged to be there when, when my older two kids were born, and as soon as they're born, they, 
make them cry, which always seems a little cruel, but it works, you know. They make them cry, and then they clean them off, and they wrap them up really tight in the, in the clothes, right, in the blanket. Why do they do that? Well, number one, you want the baby to stay warm. He just came from a really warm place. Now he's in a cold world, and you want to wrap him up and make him feel good, okay? And the baby feels secure when they're all wrapped up. Well, they did that to Jesus with little strips of cloth. They wrapped him up, they cleaned him off, wrapped him up. Baby Jesus came into the world like you and me is what I'm saying. Came in as a baby. Now, let's finish with this. Who were the first people to find out Jesus was born? You say, well, they sent a dispatch right to Rome. Man, right, right to Augustus and said, hey, king of the Jews, man, Jesus is here. They sent a dispatch to Jerusalem to the high priest. No, you know that ain't right. Nah, none of them people cared. None of those people cared. The high priest should have known, but he did, didn't care. None of those people cared. Now look at verses 8 to 14. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid, very much afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now I'm not going to take the time to go through every part of this, but let me, let me hit some highlights. First of all, notice that the very first people who are informed of the birth of Christ are shepherds. Shepherds were considered among the lowest of those who worked in Israel and around Israel because technically they were always ceremonially unclean dealing with the animals. They were considered unclean. They were considered the lowest of professions. So they were, in some ways, the outcasts. Do you see a pattern here? Who does Jesus come to? To the lowly, to the outcast, to those who know they need a Savior. Jesus himself said, I didn't come as a physician for those who need no healing. I come to heal those who are sick. And he means those who know they need a healer. So these shepherds are out there minding their business. Now, I like this passage a lot. The angel of the Lord shows up in all the glory of God on him in the middle of the night. What do you think that looked like? It's dark. The shepherds are sitting out there. You know how your eyes are when you've been in the dark? And suddenly, the noonday sun appears in the sky in the form of an angel. You say, why was the angel so bright? Because he's been hanging out with God. And the glory of God is on him. And when he showed up, he's got the glory of God on him, and he lit up the night sky like daytime. And it says they were afraid. I bet they were. But what do the angels always say to people when they're afraid? Don't be as scared. 
don't be afraid. And this angel said, don't be afraid for a particular reason. He said, I got good tidings for you. I come, I come with a message of good news for you and for the whole world. See, the angels know, don't they? Isn't that amazing? The angel knows the deal. He knows why Jesus came. He knows he's coming to be the Savior. He knows the whole world needs him. And the angel said, I got good news for you. A Savior is born, Christ the Lord, in the city of David. And here's how you know you found him. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a, in a feeding trough. So you need to go find him. Now, I like the last part a lot. While the angel's telling them the message and telling them that Jesus is born, it says a whole host of heavenly angels show up. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're going to close. But let me tell you, let that sink into your brain for just a minute. If you think they were shocked by the appearance of one angel, man, a host showed up. Now, let me put it in perspective for you. The Bible says the angels are, are like innumerable. There's, there's so many of them, you can't count them. And it says here that a host of them showed up with this angel and began to praise God. Now, I've heard the Hallelujah Chorus sung by a lot of chorus, a lot of choirs, and I love the song. But you ain't never heard a song sung like them, guy, them angels were singing, I can assure you. Because the angels can sing. Somebody was telling me last week that a scholar was saying the angels didn't sing. Well, I beg to differ with you. The Bible says the angels and those in heaven sing and worship God all the time. There's singing going on in heaven. If you don't sing here, you might want to take some lessons because you're going to sing in heaven. We're going to sing in heaven. These angels show up and they begin to sing and praise God and shout glory to God. A couple of observations real quick. There is an angelic spiritual world around us that we can't see. And they operate all the time. They're here. We just can't see them. Every now and then in the Bible, God peels back the curtain and lets us see what's going on around us. And these angels, get this now, one angel comes to give the message, but there's a whole host of angels who are looking in on what's going on. I would suggest to you that every angel in heaven looks on what God's doing in this world. And they look on it with amazement and they glorify God for it. One last thought and we're going to close. Why did God do all this? Why, why did God do all this? Why did Jesus do all this? Well, I said in the beginning, one, he loves you. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have done all this. Love is God's motive. A love beyond what we can understand is God's motive. Because you understand God's God and nobody makes him do anything. God's not, God's not beholden to anyone. He doesn't know anybody anything. He's God. He's sovereign. But because he loves us, his love drives him to reach out to us. Secondly, what's going to be the end of all this? Jesus born, lives, dies on the cross, buried, raised again the third day, building the church, people getting saved. If you're lost today, I pray you get saved. People being added to the church, boom, Jesus is going to come back, rapture the church. What's the purpose in it all? 
to take to heaven sons and daughters that will be his forever. And number two, most importantly, God will be glorified forever and ever and ever in what he did in redeeming us. Amen. Forever. You, as a Christian, you as a saint, you as a child of God, will be exhibit A forever of the love and goodness of God. Now, I know this probably won't happen because the angels know better. But I think maybe there might be angels standing around sometime who are going to look at us and go, man, that's love. You see that bunch? You see them? Did you see what they were like? And the angels know. They can see. Did you see the sin, the rebellion, the blasphemy, the wickedness of that, of that creature? And God saved them. What a great God. That'll be for all eternity. And guess what we'll be doing? We'll be saying the same thing. Whoo, God. Love beyond what we can measure. We're here. Look how awesome heaven is and fellowship, and we'll be worshiping him forever for saving us and for taking us there. Guess what? It all, it all began with the birth of a baby in Bethlehem, orchestrated by the Father to bring salvation to you and me. If you're here this morning and you've never been saved, I don't know what else to say to you other than you need to get saved right now. He said, how do I get saved? Ask him. Be willing to confess your sin. Come to him humbly. God, I'm a sinner. God, I know it. Your word reveals it. I confess it. God, save me. Forgive my sin. Save me. I want to be saved. If you'll pray and ask God to do that, he'll save your soul right now. Right now in this place, right where you sit, you will go from being lost to having eternal life right now. That's the best deal you're ever going to get. I would suggest you receive it. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous account given to us by Luke, Lord, given by you through Luke of the birth of your son. Thank you, Father, for orchestrating the world and nations and potentates and leaders and bringing together all the events of the birth of our Savior. Thank you, Father, for orchestrating it from before the world began, for planning it, before time began. Thank you, Father, for loving us when we're so unlovable. God, when we deserve judgment, you give grace and mercy. God, how can it be? Lord, maybe there's somebody here today. Maybe they've never been saved and they don't understand. God, give them understanding today or the hearing of this.